Radio Mano Papachango. Let's do Aroma. And I'm going to admit right from the get-go that I'm doing this because I've got a shit ton of work to do on Civilized to Death, and I'm avoiding it. And the day's half done. It's 2.20 in the afternoon. Wim Hof and his son NM are coming over at 5, and we're going on a hike. And I just don't want to get into the book right now, so I'm going to do it tomorrow. What I'm doing with the book for those of you who give a shit, is um, the final, final, final last chance to make any changes pass. I've got a week. They sent me um, the copy edited file and I had an hour and a half conversation with a lawyer from the publisher the other day. Um, She had read the manuscript and had some comments and some input about how to avoid being sued. <laughs> so that's the stage we're at with the book. I got a, I've got a week to, it's sort of like speak now or forever hold your peace time. So anyway, that's going to take a lot of focus and I didn't feel like trying to get into that for a couple hours um, before women and him come over. So I'm going to just do aroma because I've been, threatening to do one of these for a while now and haven't gotten around to it sorry for the squeaky chair there are a bunch of things i want to talk to you about some of your emails uh, i want to respond to some things that uh, i've had on my mind recently that i wanted to vent about um and uh a new website that i have up a whole bunch of stuff going on everything's going on and I keep what I'm doing the intros to the normal episodes you know I've got these post-it notes stuck to my computer and I think I should talk about this I should talk about that but honestly I I don't like distracting or taking up too much time um, away from the you know the focus of the conversation in that episode so I tend to skip a lot of stuff and also you know I've got the ads recently you know the new sponsorships and those take time and so I things tend to pile up um okay first thing I want to talk about is and this is kind of enigmatic um because as you know if you know me um I'm not really uh, a very material kind of guy. I'm, uh, I really like that quote from Henry David Thoreau, a man's wealth is best measured by the things he can do without that. I read that when I was a teenager and it's been sort of a pivotal, a touchstone quote for me over the years. And one of the, the skills that I developed as a young man was, living a high quality life on low income. Um, you know, until I wrote sex at dawn, I never had more than, I don't know, 
Well, I had some money when I lived in New York and was working in the Diamond District, but that was only a couple of years in my mid-20s. After that, it was all just hand-to-mouth stuff. It was, you know, teach, do some translation. You know, I was um, hustling, trying to, you know, make some money here, there, and uh, keep traveling or keep living in Spain or keep doing whatever it was I was doing, doing massages and um, interpreting and whatever I could do to make some cash. Uh, I grew weed too, as you may know. Um, I guess it's legal now. I can say that I grew weed for years that supplemented my income. Um, but the thing is when you don't have a lot of money, but you still live in this world, you still need to buy shit. Uh, and, uh, despite the fact that I never had a lot of money, I have like, I, I like good shit. So I would rather buy, you know, one chocolate bar that's 82% cacao than five dairy milk chocolate shitty bars. So that's always been my thing, like high quality, low expense. And when I met Casilda 19 and a half years ago, one of the things that we connected on was that she was working really hard, making lots of money and had a shitty quality of life. I was working very little, had very little money, and had a very high quality of life. So part of the thing was you teach me to work harder and I'll teach you how to live better on less. Um, and that sort of, that thread uh, agreement has permeated our relationship ever since. Um, anyway, my point is that when you don't have a lot, you pay attention to what you do have. And so... I tend to have pretty good stuff and my friends and family will often ask me for advice when they're buying something because they know I put a lot of thought into it. I don't buy some crap and then find out it's bullshit and throw it away and then buy something else. I hate wasting money. I hate it. I hate wasting time. I hate wasting effort. I like to be as efficient as possible with these things. So when I do buy things, generally, I find the best possible version of it. All of this brings me to the point that years ago, people started asking me, you know, what do you use for recording your podcast? What recorder? What microphones? What computer do you have? What, hey, what's this thing? Where'd you get that lamp? That's really cool. What, what, what kind of, what is that watch? And I like that watch. So people are always asking me like about my stuff. So I set up a thing on my website, like stuff I own or something. And there's some Amazon affiliate link that was easy to do on Squarespace. So I just threw up a bunch of shit that I, I just look around my apartment like, oh yeah, that, that vacuum cleaner is good. And you know, I use that space heater in the van and whatever. And, um, so I had that web, that's the page on my website. And then recently I bought the URL to, um, uh, uh, well, based, it's a long story. I don't think I've told you. So this guy, Rick Beato does a thing on YouTube called what makes this song great, which is fantastic. Highly recommended. And Rick and I became friends, and I love watching his videos because he unpacks songs and explains why this is a great fucking song. The last one I watched just a couple nights ago was uh, on a Doors tune. 
touch me, babe. Come on, come on and touch me. Babe. It's he unpacks it and shows what an amazingly strange song that is. And if you just listen to it on the radio, it can you like, yeah, cool, the doors, whatever. But you don't realize how fucking weird that song is. And Rick really unpacks it. So anyway, I went online into my domain place and I saw that what makes this song great was available. So I quickly bought it and transferred it to Rick because he needs to own that to protect his show, you know. But then I thought... I was thinking about doing a podcast, which I think I've mentioned before, about literature and to sort of do what Rick's doing with music, but to explain why this is a great book, why this is a great author, why this piece of poetry is fucking kicks ass, why this is so interesting and unpack it the way he does. So I also bought the URL, What Makes This Book Great, and that's what the podcast is going to be called. And then I thought, while I'm on there, it's like, I like this, this, what makes X great format, because it shows you that what you're getting is enthusiasm. You're not getting critiques. You're not getting Yelp reviews of why this sucks or how this could be better. It's just good stuff. And here's why it's good. So I also bought the URL, what makes this thing great. And the idea was I could take that stuff from my website, put it up on a separate website, what makes this thing great.com, and people who listen to the podcast or follow me on social media or whatever can consult that if they give a fuck. If they're buying something and they're like, I wonder what Chris uses in the van, you know, what exhaust fan or what refrigerator unit he has in his van, or, you know, I wonder, you know, what, what reading light does he have by his bed? Not that I'm a fucking guru douchebag that you should do what I do, but if you happen to give a fuck, um, I promise you that I put effort into this. I think about shit before I buy it. So if you, want to see what I have and read why I think it's good, go to whatmakesthisthinggreat.com and you'll see some of that stuff. Like, what kind of hammock do I have? I spent a lot of time in hammocks. I've spent decades thinking about hammocks, buying hammocks all over the world. What do... What does Chris think is the best fucking hammock right now? Well, if you go to whatmakesthisthinggreat.com, you'll see what hammock I... I've got like half a dozen of these hammocks. Um, And at the moment, they're all things that are sold on Amazon. So there's that affiliate thing. So if you end up buying it and you click through the site, then, you know, three or four or five percent of what you spend kicks back uh, to support my endeavor. So thank you for that. So that's the first thing I want to talk about. What makes this thing great dot com. Check it out. Okay. Hard pivot away from consumerism to Mahatma fucking Gandhi. So this, I saw this quote on social media somewhere the other day and it, uh, it reminds me of something that I think about quite a lot. And so I thought I would uh, I would vent with you here about this. So Mahatma Gandhi, as you probably know, was a civil rights leader. He led the Indian um, sort of peaceful uprising against British colonial rule 
that have resulted in Britain retreating from India, giving up the colony. I mean, honestly, they were going to do it anyway because they were so exhausted after World War II, they couldn't possibly have held on to it. But anyway, Gandhi is known as a, you know, he's a heroic figure because um, of his adherence to nonviolence, principles of nonviolence, civil disobedience, which, by the way, go back to Henry David Thoreau, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, who wrote an essay called Civil Disobedience um, in the what, 1840s, probably, um, because he was an abolitionist. He was against slavery and um, felt that the best way to end slavery was to refuse to participate in structures that supported slavery. So he refused to pay his taxes unless the government would guarantee that none of that money would be used to support slavery, which of course the government won't and can't guarantee. So he went to jail for that. Um, anyway, he wrote that essay, which was later read by Gandhi uh, when Gandhi was a lawyer in South Africa. And um, Gandhi used those principles in the uprising uh, resistance to British colonial rule. And then uh, Martin Luther King also read the essay uh, by Thoreau, and it led to his, informed his um, nonviolent protest in the civil rights era in the 1960s. So it was a very um, um, impactful essay by Henry David Thoreau. Anyway, here's this quote from Gandhi. He says, when I despair... I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love have always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time, they can seem invincible. But in the end, they always fall. Think of it. Always. Now, this is a quote I've seen before, and I've seen other quotes like it, um, that are meant to inspire us, give us hope, um, you know, keep us marching forward because in the end, good always prevails over evil. Always. And what struck me is that much as I want to support the sentiment here because it makes me feel good, and it, um, you know, hope is important and yada, yada, yada. But, but this is total bullshit. And I'm sorry, I don't want to be comforted with bullshit. So let's look at this. Why is this bullshit? Well, Gandhi says, all through history, the way of truth and love have always won. He uses this word always three times in what one two three sentences four sentences if always counts as a sentence um always 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 the way of truth and love have always won all through history what does that mean what does it mean to win in history by the way is he saying that the good side has won every war he can't possibly be saying that because um you know do we need do i need to provide examples of wars where the bad guys won 
or where it's not clear who was the good and who was the bad side on that war. Um, truth and love. It, really? Did truth and love, you know, beat Genghis Khan? Uh, did truth and love vanquish Pol Pot or Mao or Stalin? What the fuck is he talking about? There have been tyrants and murderers. And for a time, they can seem invincible, but in the end, they always fall. Okay, sure. Everyone always falls. Everyone always dies. Every government eventually changes. Every administration changes. Every Everything changes. But that doesn't mean good and love won. What does it mean? I don't even... I can't even... I mean, it's strange. I know this is bullshit, but I can't actually tell you what it even fucking means. No one won. I mean, I, I get the same feeling when I when I hear someone say, um, you know, well, humanity's going to be fine because we always find a way. We, you know, we all in the end, we always invent ourselves out of any corner that we get pushed into. And there's that comforting like, oh, you know, it, it always works out in the end. No, it doesn't. Because the end doesn't mean anything. The end is personal. So it didn't work out in the end for 6 million Jews in World War II, did it? And gypsies and gay people. It didn't work out for Native American, 100 million Native American people who died within a decade of Columbus landing in the New World. Didn't work out for them in the end. Didn't work out for the Incas. Didn't work out for the Apaches. Didn't work out for the Cheyenne or the Lakota. Didn't work out for the Iroquois. Nope, not really. Didn't work out very well. Truth and love didn't win with the Nez Perce or the Flatheads or the Utes. (laughs) I mean, what are we talking about here? Truth and love didn't win in the rape of Nanking, right? The the 20 or 30 million or however many, I don't even know how many people were wiped out by the Japanese when they invaded China in the 1930s. So truth and love have always won. No, they haven't. No, they haven't. First of all, that's a nonsensical statement because it presupposes that history is composed of discrete episodes that begin and end. And at the end, we can say who won, which is nonsense, conceptually. And then furthermore, it negates the experience of those who didn't survive. Right? When someone says, well, we always found a way out in the end. That's like people on the bus saying, you know, No matter how late I am, I always catch the bus. We all catch the bus, don't we? Well, yeah, we're on the bus. We're the ones who caught it. The ones who missed the bus aren't here to tell us about their experience, are they? The people who didn't survive the death camps didn't go home and write books about the death camps. The cultures that were wiped out aren't here to say, uh, excuse me, uh, maybe truth and love haven't always won, Mr. Gandhi. 
They're not here to fucking represent the victims of history. So this triumphant, triumphalist, I think the word is triumphalist, this, uh, you know, this sort of self-satisfied appeal to optimism and hope based upon the seemingly logical and seemingly irrefutable declaration that truth always prevails. You hear this also with, with, um, you know, journalism or something like, you know, the truth always comes out in the end. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. What are you basing that on? You're basing that on the scandals that you've heard about because the truth came out in the end. But you can't presuppose then that all scandals get exposed eventually, that all crimes end up resulting in a conviction. They don't. Most criminals get away with it. Most scandals we never fucking hear about. You know, it's like the therapist saying, you know, oh, unconventional romantic relationship structures never work because I've never met a a patient who was happy with their triad relationship or their non-monogamous relationship or their kinky relationship. Of course you haven't. You're a fucking therapist. People come to you when things aren't working. They don't, nobody pays $250 an hour to go and talk to a therapist about how great everything is. Ah, drives me crazy, this stuff. Yeah. So no, the truth doesn't always come out. No, love and hope and light don't always win. It's like saying, I mean, I could, you could just as easily argue exactly the opposite. Right. I could argue that, no, uh, hate and despair always win. It makes exactly as much sense, which is zero, essentially, because basically what you're saying is no matter how dark it gets, the sun always rises. That's true. You know what else is true? No matter how bright it gets, the sun always fucking goes down. All right. Definitely need a musical break here because I'm getting all hot under the collar it's not good uh my friend katie is in australia and uh she just sent me a text that she was let me see what she says here i can yeah read her text um good day chris this woman was playing at the farmer's market in bangalore north nsw north south wales something it's i forget what it's called it's the province in australia beautiful green hilly town just in from the coast her voice and phrasing blew me out of the water she's a samoan australian musician maybe you'll play some of her music for your show and hell yeah i will her she's great her name's elena b williams and uh yeah she's um australian samoan guitarist singer songwriter currently living in Byron Bay, and uh, her website is elenabwilliams.com. Apparently, she's busking and sells uh, CDs on the street, and uh, I love her voice. I love her phrasing. I think she's fucking great. This song is called Desert Land, and it's from her album Feet in the Sand, Elena B. Williams. Check her out. (laughs) 
Pretty sweet, huh? Great voice, great delivery, great lyrics. Elena B. Williams dot com. All right, so here's another bit of news that uh, I found interesting recently. Uh, sex scandal. Kevin Tsuhirahara. I don't know how to say it. He's Japanese-American. T-S-U-J-I-H-A-R-A. He was chairman and CEO of Warner Brothers. So major power dude in Hollywood. Um, so here's, the here's as I understand it, here's what happened. He started having an affair... Uh, a few years ago with a young British actress and named Charlotte Kirk uh, back in 2013. So that's six years ago. And um, so they're fucking and she's asking him to get her movie roles and, you know, put her in TV shows and stuff. And he says, I can't do that, of course, but I can take you to parties and introduce you to people. And, you know, then you're sort of on your own, but I can, I can get you in the door. Uh, and apparently from some of the stuff I read and heard the pressure on him to get her into movies was increasing and he refused to tell anyone to cast her in a movie, which is the right move. Uh, and then lo and behold, their text messages were made public. And now he is being, he's stepping down under pressure um, from his role. His career's over. And in one of the interviews I heard about this, I think it was an NPR, it was a woman a journalist being interviewed by another woman and the the interviewer said to her, um, but these were consensual, like this was a consensual relationship, right? And the journalist said, yes, but you know, this is a man in his 50s who's having an affair with a young woman in her early 20s. Um, you know, obviously this is totally inappropriate. And I'm thinking, what? Who are you to say what's appropriate and inappropriate? And the way I look at this situation, and granted, I, let me just say from the beginning, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I mean, that should be at the beginning of every episode of every podcast I ever go on, like, you know. Enter at your own risk. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But the way this looks to me is ambitious young actress gets on an affair with a powerful dude in Hollywood. She's fucking him. She wants access to, you know, she wants her career to, to blossom. He does what he can within the within the sort of bounds of ethical propriety he can introduce her to people but he can't tell anyone to cast her that's not enough for her she blackmails him if you don't fucking get me in a movie i'm gonna bury you 
I think the guy was married, too, so it's probably not. We don't know what arrangements he had with his wife. We don't know whether she's cool with it or not. We have no idea. And then he doesn't ever push anyone to cast this woman, and lo and behold, their private text messages become public, and his career's over. And he's the bad guy. He's the criminal. He's the asshole in this story. Now, I hear this story and I'm like, wait a minute. This dude's got this dude got blackmailed by this ambitious young actress. That's how it looks to me. I don't know that that's the case, but that's how it looks to me. And he refused to do anything unethical as far as pushing for her to get a role if it's if if you can lose your job for introducing someone to someone else then you know i don't know what jobs are safe and granted the company has a public relations situation to think about so this guy's married but he's fucking around and that becomes public they can decide to bury him for that but I don't really see what he did here that's unethical. And I guess my point is that the way this story is being presented, it's about the power imbalance of this man in his 50s who's, you know, the top executive at a studio and this poor young actress um, who he's boning um and she has no idea what she's doing because she's so young and naive. Look, I'm a man in his 50s, and I can tell you that there are some things about being in your 50s that confer power. You have experience, you have access, you know people, uh, yeah, etc. And I'm no fucking studio executive, so, you know, I've he's got a lot more power in that world than I have in any world. But... There are also things about being a man in your 50s that confer vulnerabilities. Let's face it. You're not getting any younger. Your body isn't what it used to be. Um, you know, you're you're wondering if you still have it. You're wondering if, if women find you attractive. Why? You know, what's going on? Like, what are they? What do they see? There's a lot of room for doubt and uh, insecurity in, for a man in his 50s. And a woman in her early 20s can be a very powerful individual. And granted, she doesn't have the contacts. She doesn't have a lot of the things that someone 30 years older does have. But she has a lot of things that someone 30 years older doesn't have especially if she's a hot young actress. So my point is that the reporting of these situations exaggerates the power of the older man and diminishes or understates or denies the power of the younger woman. And I don't think that's doing any favor to women. I think always presenting women as the victims in these situations is a disservice to women because women have a lot of power 
and I agree that they should have access to every kind of power, uh, including being the heads of studios and whatever the fuck else they want to be. But to say that this woman is a victim in this situation and that the guy is a predator is to ignore, in my opinion, um, a very important aspect of the situation. Yeah. Now that should get me in trouble with a lot of people. Mission accomplished. Okay, I'm going to play another piece of music. This is uh, from another very uh, sort of unknown band, uh, unknown musicians. They're Hermanos Gutierrez. I played a song uh, by these dudes, the Brothers Gutierrez, a few episodes back. Uh, and this time I'm going to play El Jardín. They are based in, where the fuck are they based? In Switzerland, I believe. As far as I can tell, they don't have a website. Uh, Their music is on Spotify and, uh, you know, these other sort of uh, web-based music places. What's the, like Spotify and uh, SoundCloud. Yeah, um... Oh wait, no, they do have a they do have a website. Hermanos Gutierrez dot ch. Yeah, it's just two dudes playing guitar. But they're fucking great. I really like them. Uh anyway, this song is called El Jardin, the Garden, and it's from the album Ocho Años, also known as Eight Years, to those of us who don't speak Spanish. Uh El Jardin, the Garden, Hermanos Gutierrez. Espero que les gusta mucho la música de Hermanos Gutiérrez hasta ahora.
Hermanos Gutiérrez, eh, El Jardín del Disco Ocho Años. Gracias, hermanos. So, uh, as you may know, I was just in Hawaii recently um, on a, a brief four-day excursion with a bunch of dudes who were hunting, and um, I basically went along to hang out and see Hawaii and get helicopter rides because I've never, I had never been in a helicopter before, and that was fucking awesome. Um, I. So I went out with Kyle Tierman, the great Kyle Tierman, um, and uh, we camped on this bluff. I think they're the highest sea cliffs in the world um, on the island of Molokai. And we were camping up there, and it was like the fucking Scottish Highlands. It was hot as hell down on the beach, but up on the bluffs, it was cold and misty and... There's water, standing water everywhere. Every step you take, you're like squishing, you know, up into your ankles. Sometimes you'd go down up to your knee. It was not what I would call comfortable hiking area. Um, but it was beautiful and uh, interesting. And at one point, so we're out with a rifle, uh, Kyle and I, and the guide, a guy named Uka, and... Uh, We saw some animals and across this little um, sort of wash on the other, the facing slope, there were a couple of wild pigs. And, um, you know, we had this rifle with a scope on it. It was an easy shot. And they're like, hey, Chris, why don't you why don't you take the shot? You can you can definitely hit them. And. Um, and, you know, I just I wasn't feeling it and. One of the reasons that I wanted to do this or go on these hunt, uh, hunting trip was to see how I reacted. And I imagined that I would feel excitement and, you know, like a mixture of intense feelings. Um, and maybe I would have if I had shot one of those animals, but I didn't. What I felt was like so unexcited by the prospect that it wasn't um it wasn't worthwhile you know i just felt like like if 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 it had made me excited or given me some sort of um an intense thrill feeling of of any sort then i'd be more interested in it but what i felt was just like eh Eh, you know, it, it's just, it's not worth it. It's going to be a hassle, you know, I'm going to kill this thing. And then, you know, then we're going to have to cut it up and get the meat and put it in bags and, you know, slice and dice all this shit and then carry it back to the camp. And, um, yeah, I just felt like, yeah, yeah. it wasn't, It wasn't uh, that I was opposed to it. It just felt like it wasn't worth the trouble. Um, I don't know. I'm still working through the feelings, to be honest with you. I'm still trying to figure out. You know, and then I, and I was thinking later, uh, those guys continued 
trudging along and I was like, yeah, you know what, guys, I'm going to go back and hang at the camp because it was such a beautiful view. And I felt like, why am I not like back there chilling, enjoying this view? And I'm trudging in mud up to my knees. Um, anyway, so when I was walking back to the camp, I was thinking how one of the reasons that I wanted to go on a hunt was to confront the reality of where meat comes from. And I felt hypocritical that, you know, I'm eating the ham sandwiches and I've never killed a pig or even seen a, well, I guess I saw a pig get killed in India, but um, it's not something I've been intimately involved in, certainly. And uh, so I wanted to sort of come face to face with the truth, right? The truth of my own participation in these things. And so walking back, I was thinking, yeah, why didn't I feel like doing that? Why? And again, I think I'm being honest with myself and you when I say that it wasn't that I felt afraid or repelled by it. I just felt uninterested. And so I was thinking about why, why didn't that feel relevant to me? Why didn't it feel important and urgent and you know, one way or the other. And then it occurred to me that like, I don't eat the meat from wild pigs. That's not the source of the pork that enters my life. And so it's not really honest to say, okay, well, I eat bacon, therefore I'm going to go shoot a wild pig in Hawaii and deal with the reality of this because that isn't the reality of it. If I want to deal with the reality of it, what I should do is go to a slaughterhouse and see pigs going down a fucking conveyor belt being offed, you know, five per second or whatever the rate is in these commercial slaughterhouses and, you know, splayed and chopped up and packaged in four minutes from, when they're screaming till they're, you know, in a truck on the way to the fucking supermarket. That's the reality of where my bacon comes from. So maybe that's why it didn't feel relevant to me because it's not actually related in any way to my diet. I don't know. I don't know. And there's no judgment, by the way. I want to be really clear about that. I'm not condemning hunting i'm not uh I, I don't mean to be dismissive of anyone else's feelings around the issue at all i i find it all very interesting and and sort of well worth thinking about uh which is what i'm trying to do and other people um kyle included feel um there's something very meaningful in the experience for them and uh and I recognize that and, and honor it. Um, I just wonder that maybe maybe it doesn't work that way for me. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm going on another trip to Hawaii in April next month uh, with the bow. And I'll be possibly shooting a pig with an arrow at that point. So maybe that'll be a different experience. Um, maybe I'll feel differently. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, all right, let's play another song. This is, I'm playing sort of smooth music today. 
Um, and this one is from one of my absolute favorite records um, to listen to late at night when you're sort of drifting off to sleep or you've got the candles and, you know, it's that sort of coming in for a landing phase of the evening. Uh, this is an album called Beneath the Missouri Sky. It's by um, Pat Metheny, who's one of the greatest jazz guitarists who's ever lived, and Charlie Hayden, who plays upright bass, played. I guess he died a couple of years ago. And they did this record together. I guess they were both born in Missouri, and um, they're both jazz uh, instrumentalists, obviously, and knew each other and decided to do this record together. Um it's a beautiful record. It's it's got you'll hear a certain very mellow uh intelligent groove in this song which is called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. I think it's a classic. This is a a cover. Um and that tone and groove and intelligence permeates the whole record. So if you like this song, I'd highly recommend that you you get a hold of the the record, the disc, whatever they call them these days. Uh, it's funny, you know, like we're still calling this a podcast, although nobody has iPods anymore. I, I think I've got like one tucked away in a drawer somewhere, but it'll be worth a fortune. It'll be like, you know, film cameras or something. Um, so I don't know what they're calling units of music, but if you want to get this unit of music, it's called Beneath the Missouri Sky, and it's by Pat Metheny and Charlie Hayden. And again, this song is called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Thank you. 
The last thing I wanted to talk about on this Roman, and I know I haven't gotten to your emails. Um, we'll do that more of that next time. But there is one email that I wanted to talk about. Uh, when I was out in Hawaii, we woke up the last morning at four o'clock in the morning to um, to go out and sort of get in position before sunrise. And um, I was in an area that had uh, phone coverage and my phone had been dead for a couple of days. I didn't have any battery charger or anything. And you know, I was camping in the middle of nowhere. I didn't have any coverage anyway, so it didn't matter. Anyway, I'd gotten I, this time I was in an area with coverage and I charged my phone up and uh, woke up uh, an hour, hour and a half before dawn. And I turned on my phone to use the flashlight to get dressed and find stuff in my tent. And, um, all these emails started coming in, you know, from three or four days worth of emails came streaming into my phone. And one of them jumped out at me right away. Um, so I'm sitting there in the dark in my tent, looking at the phone and one of the emails, the subject heading was, I was going to kill myself today, but I thought of you and didn't. And so I read this email from a young man who was feeling lost and, and hopeless. And, um, and the, the email was written to me and Joe Rogan and Duncan Trussell. And I guess he, the guy who wrote it sort of sees us as friends or, or companions somehow in this life and um, sent this email just basically saying, um, I was ready to check out and then I remembered you guys and felt like maybe I wasn't as alone as I thought and decided not to. And I don't want to talk about this too much because... I'm sure this guy's probably listening. I hope he is. And I hope he's feeling better. Um, and I'm very sensitive to how to say this. It's like, there's a hunger. I know there's a hunger out there. Um, because I get so many emails and I meet so many people in their twenties and thirties and, um, particularly I know there are people older or people my age who listen to this and you know I love you guys I'm really glad you're here too 
Um, but there is this, I feel like it's almost like there's a psychological nutrient missing from the diet uh, now. And that nutrient is like the voice of an older man that in the lives of these people and of these young men and women that they can relate to that is, you know, sufficiently older than them that there's some perspective and maybe a little wisdom or, you know, whatever, something that, that only comes with time. Um, but that isn't a stick up the ass, you know, um, the kind of person that they can't relate to. And so I know I have in people's lives, I've sort of, I have this, this role of like the cool uncle or, you know, like, you know, what my dad would be like if he had traveled instead of, you know, done some acid instead of marrying mom when he was 22 or getting a job or whatever, like somehow I fulfill this role for a lot of people. And, you know, I'm really grateful that, that what I'm putting out uh, on this podcast and in books or whatever is valuable for people and touches them and enriches their lives in some way. On the other hand, I don't see myself doing that. That's not what I'm intending to do. I don't do this podcast thinking, how can I you know, help young people? How can I fulfill the role of, you know, cool Uncle Chris for people in their 20s and 30s? That's not my intention at all. So it's this weird kind of thing where I'm really glad that it lands that way, but that's not what I'm sending out necessarily, at least not intentionally. And so I don't want to take any credit for it. And I feel the same thing you know, when I play those snips at the beginning of the normal episodes, hey, Chris, you know, thanks so much for your podcast. It's so great. Blah, 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 blah. I feel a little sheepish about that because my intention is not to like, hey, look how cool I am every episode from three, you know, like you see testimonials on people's websites, you know, Chris helped me overcome my smoking habit and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm really trying to do is just share you with you you know, share you with each other and um, sort of give you a sense of who else is in this community. Because I hear from a lot of you, but I know you only hear from me. So I'm trying to make it more of a party as opposed to, uh, you know, a presentation or something. You know, I don't want to be the center of attention. I want you to be able to meet each other and have this community be a living, growing, dynamic thing that, you know, I could drop dead and there would still be, you guys would still know each other. I, I had this experience a couple of weeks ago. I was with two friends, both young in their early thirties, and they met each other through me and they clicked so well together. Uh, and it was the first time they'd met in person and they clicked so well. And I realized looking at them like, shit, you two are still going to be friends when I'm dead. Like, that's a weird thing to think. But it's a beautiful thing because I don't have kids and I don't really believe that books are legacy. I don't really even think about legacy. But if I'm going to have a legacy, 
What I would love it to be is love itself. That people meet each other through me and that connection enriches their lives and spreads out into the fucking universe. And so you can remove me from it and it's still, the wheels still turn. So that's, it's the conundrum of this podcast that, uh, I, I know that for some of you, there's a value that I can't really acknowledge because even if I did acknowledge it, then I turn into this douchebag guru who thinks, you know, like that I'm pumping out some fucking wisdom and, you know, then whatever wisdom there is will be gone the minute I start thinking that. So anyway, I don't know why I'm saying this. I guess I'm just saying I just wanted you to know how grateful I am to be part of this, whatever this is. And that if you're having a bad day and you're feeling alone, just to know you're not alone. Even if physically you are or you look around at the people you know and nobody gets you. The world is full of people who would get you and just hold on. What do you have to lose? The party might get a lot better. You never know what's about to happen. You never know who's about to walk through a door. And, uh, you know, it's going to end anyway. So why not stick around? see what happens all right i'm gonna wrap it up with that this is a tune um it's by oyston savag uh, who i've played uh on this podcast a couple times global house is that sort of funky didgeridoo tune that i've played at least once maybe twice this is a much quieter tune it's called rio amazonas the amazon river uh, it's from uh, an EP, I think. It's called Visual, and um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's an instrumental piece. I don't. It, it just touches me somehow. So maybe it'll touch you. Oyston Savag, Rio Amazonas. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of this weird, dysfunctional family. Talk to you next time.